back to the Maristin Podcast. Um, we're talking today about an interview with Tish Harrison Warren on the Cultivated Podcast, uh, which is led by Mike Cosper. Um, and I'm talking with my brother-in-law, Adam Green, today about that. Um, yeah, lots of talk about grief, how God has called us to grieve, how he guides us to grieve. Um, really, really good conversation. I really enjoyed it. So here you go. All right. So, Adam, um, the podcast we listen to, I would say the main theme is grief. The main word that comes up, uh, the theme of what was talked about was grief. Uh, I think it could be good for us before we talk too much about it is to maybe define in our words uh, what how we would define grief. What would your answer to that question be? Yeah. Um, so I, of course, associate grief with sadness, but I was, I'm... I was trying to think of like what's the difference between grief and sadness. Um, I guess grief can be associated with more of a particular event, which I guess sadness is um, too. But but grief is a response to a negative event mm-hmm. and how you kind of deal with it emotionally. Yeah, yeah. It's very it's a very uh, counselory word. I feel like I use it a lot in conversations and counseling. Um, I think you're totally right. Like it's a, it's a way that we respond to loss or pain or trauma or like, yeah. And it definitely includes sadness. I think it probably includes anger too. Yeah. Or like multiple emotions, you know, like there's some elements of hope. Like how do I deal with hope in the middle of grief and that kind of stuff? Hmm. Um, I think there's a time aspect too. There's this process of grief. Like there's like clinically there, you know, you have the seven stages of grief. Yeah. And those yeah. stages sort of imply time. It's not, that can be tricky though. I think people get stuck thinking, you know, that person grieved differently than I do or quicker mm-hmm. in a different time frame than I did. So somehow I'm doing it wrong. And it's not necessarily true. Um, but there is sort of a progression element to grief. I think of like moving through things and giving it space and time to happen. Um, yeah, and uh, so Tish and Mike talk a lot about grief and the problems in grief, um, both in the, our kind of American Western culture and then in the church as well. And I just mean, I, I think, so one, this is probably my favorite podcast. And so I really appreciate you listening to this episode and talking about it with me. Uh, this this podcast in general, Cultivated. Um, and I love the interviews that happen in here. and I love the kind of way they talk about things. Um but then, two, this subject of grief is something that is really just in my life a lot, whether that's through talking with other people through it or figuring out how to do it personally. Like, I, I think I've realized in the last couple of years I'm kind of bad at grief. Um, and so, anyway, hearing them talk about this and talk about the problems with our culture when it comes to grieving and our kind of church culture was really kind of almost liberating to me or it gave yeah, me it like permission. refreshing. Yeah. That's good. That's a better way to say it. Refreshing. I don't know. What was your reaction just in general to the conversation about grief and some of the problems we have? Yeah. So it's definitely just within the past few years that I've like uh, approached the idea, um, of, of how Western culture and American culture responds to grief. And it, it just makes so much sense. Um, there's, um, you know, uh, of course, this this new book and um, uh, I read this book by Kate Bowler, who's a professor at Duke Divinity School, um, uh, called "Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved," <laughs> and uh, and she kind of um, lifts the curtain a little bit on 
um, how Americans deal with grief so poorly and all that just makes so much sense of like, oh man, yeah, we've repressed all of these things and have all of these kind of unhealthy responses, whether just burying grief. Um, and so it, yeah, it just all makes sense of, um, uh, just the idea that, that our Western culture tends to be so, um, uh, overly positive or, or what like Kate Bowler call, calls toxic positivity, mm. um, as a response to hardship, um, doesn't allow us to express our grief and our emotions because you just have to sugarcoat everything and, um, you can't express your real emotions. And so my, my first response to hearing this podcast was like, yes, more of this. I'm glad this is being talked about with everyone. Um, and especially knowing that there's people like you, um, who it's, it's part of your job to, um, as a, as a counselor to address things like this. Um, it's just really refreshing to know that it's, that, um, at least in some places we're growing as, a community as a church community and hopefully as a country to, mm. to realize that, um, there's all these emotions that we're not allowed to f- feel because of cultural constraints. Yeah. Yeah. And a big part of what they talk about in this interview was just, and it's sort of the premise for her book. Tish Warren wrote a book called prayers in the night. Um, and it's about the process of grieving and, and spiritually discipling someone to grieve. Well, um, but just a lot, a lot of what they talk about is what you're saying is the, the just the deficiency or the avoidance of grief. Um, and you talked about toxic positivity. I think, I think it's interesting to me to think about that not as just a, a way to try to feel better, but actively avoiding the grief, like a way to resist and kind of stiff arm grief, you know. Mm-hmm. And we do it for ourselves, and we do it for other people. When we do, it, you know, it's really bad when we do it for other people. We we say you know, everything's going to work out in the end or, you know, okay, it's time to get over that or whatever, you know, all the ways that we resist entering into somebody else's grief, even mm-hmm. much less our own. Um, so, yeah. I, well, I have one thing to say about that in the podcast. Um, there's one point where, um, like the, the result of calling out grief for what it is and saying, it's okay to grieve and okay to feel these things, um, gives the person who's feeling these emotions, permission to to say okay i'm not crazy like i'm i'm supposed to be feeling this it's okay right. that i'm feeling right. this and that i'm not crazy mentality is uh really healthy and and definitely used for like um i know cases of abuse and things um too of like it, it's uh um what's the word it's reassuring that like no this, this is real this is mm-hmm. a real thing mm-hmm. you're not crazy for feeling this and and giving permission to be like authentic and real and not have to feel like you have to bury it even more. Right. Right. And I think in the situation, that crazy making kind of scenario you just talked about, like when you are, you've been something, you've been through something worthy of grieving, but you, I would say even ourselves, we've been taught this and then everybody around you reflects this message that, Hey, it's kind of time to move on. It's time to mm-hmm. get over it at this point. You know, uh, Dan Adler is a, uh, is a counselor slash seminary professor, author, and he, um, 
he was talking about grief and was quoting a survey that was done. And it was the the quest of the survey was to figure out what's the average time for a person who has lost a spouse. What's the average time that the people around them start to message to them that it's time to move on? Like it's, it's basically what's the length of time where it's okay to grieve. Um, And they, you know, they did that survey by asking, you know, has anyone told you this or said, Hey, it's time to move on or it's time to feel better. Put pressure on you to feel that way. Um, anyway, they found out over thousands of people they surveyed that had lost a spouse. It was three weeks. The three weeks was the amount of time before people started kind of signaling. You need to move on. Wow. (laughs) Losing a spouse, you know, that you've been married to for tens of years. And, um, I think that's an incredible look at, yeah, man, we're weird. We do not do this well. You know, we do not, it, it, like it's very uncomfortable for us to let somebody grieve and we know that we should. And so we try, we try to do it. But then after three weeks, it's kind of like, yeah, it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. I'm still not even like completely over. Uh, I'm still grieving, like losing my church community mm. because I moved churches a few years ago when I got married mm. and I still like get emotional about it sometimes because there's, I'm, I still keep up with my friends there, but there's like a lot of connections that, aren't deep friendships, but are ones that I'm sad that I severed. So like, (laughs) so it's one thing to have that hard feeling, that negative, that sadness or that frustration, and then to have to work through that yourself, but then also to have the pressure from people around you that that's something's wrong with you for still Mm -hmm. feeling that, you know? Yeah. I think it's like a couple of different facets of that problem. Um, One of the things that Tish Warren said that man just really got my wheels turning was she said a, a phrase used in her family a lot was it could be worse as a response to grief. And yeah. I was like, man, that's so good because like that sounds good to me. It could be worse. It sounds like a, mm-hmm. a noble thing to tell yourself. You you know, you need to perk up because it could be worse yep. or you need to, you know, let's move forward because, you know, kids in Africa or whatever, mm-hmm. the yep. whatever the version of that is. Um, and to really sit down and say, look, what does that phrase really say? You know, what does that say about your own grief, about you being sad about losing your dog or, sad that your friend moved towns or whatever mm-hmm. it is, you know, as a child, you're yep. learning about this stuff, you know? Um, I think it's saying it's not, your grief isn't important. Yeah. You know, um, that there's a moral defect in you for wanting to stay in that place and be sad about that because you're, you're, you can't really be sad unless it's this really extreme version of grief. Right. Um, and, and she said it felt like complaining in her own home. To, to have grief. I just thought that was powerful. I don't know. Do, do you remember that? Remember them talking about that part? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, yeah and I, I definitely resonate with that because I did, um, you mentioned like a, a friend moving away or something, but I, I moved a few times um, in my childhood um, and like got a group of friends um, that I became really close with and then moved um, at really critical parts of my childhood um, and lost all of those friends. And it took me a long time to be able to look back at that and call that some sort of, I don't know if trauma is the right word, but, mm. um, uh, point where point worthy of grieving, um, like that made it a hard childhood in that one specific way. I wouldn't say I had a hard, hard childhood, but like those things are things that affected me and worth grieving, um, and are things that shaped me. But definitely if you just have the mentality of, um, it could have been worse than you might not address those things um, as part of your story. You know, it's tough because you don't want to say, because it, it could have been worse had contained some truth, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's we're, some we're privilege. Yeah, yeah. There's some privilege in not having to go through things that are worse than that. Mm-hmm. 
But it, but it also contains the hidden message of there's something wrong with you for feeling sad about this. Right. And what you've gone through is not significant because yeah. it's not this extreme. Thing. Why can't we just have both? <laughs> right, right. Well, it's a tension between. We're bad at that, too. Yeah, right? we're bad, bad at tension. <laughs> we're bad at paradox. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but I think what is refreshing to talk about how we're bad at this, because that's even, I mean, yep. you said it right before we started, is that in itself is a form of grief to say, let's sit in, let's sit in and let's kind of not move forward without really processing how this is something that we don't do well and we want mm-hmm. to be better at. You know? Yep. Um, so I think that's really good. Um, a couple of, so I've, my notes on this podcast are just tons and tons of quotes, just things they said that really kind of perked my ears and made me think. Um, they, uh, they brought up the, um, kind of the general issue of moral failings of pastors. And I think specifically in the young reformed movement, Mm -hmm. um, that's not that important, but Mike sort of brought up that he thought some of that could be related to, um, trauma from, well, he didn't say trauma, but I would say trauma from their from those pastors past, like a, like a father wound or a yeah. you know, pain, pain they've been through in, in childhood. I wrote that down. Yeah. stuff about father wounds. And, uh, Darren Patrick, who I guess Mike was really close with, um, had a moral thing. He was kind of a f- fairly famous pastor in the Acts 21 network. His church was really successful and he had a moral failing and then, um, kind of went through a healing process and evidently talked to Mike a fair amount about how that you know, for him was really related to grieving of a wound that he had from his childhood through his kind of father and some of the stuff they had going on in their relationship. And, um, well, one, how common is that, right? Like a father wound or what I can say this for sure. In in counseling and just in life, I think there's tons of that going around of stuff, Mm -hmm. wounds that we carry from our childhood, stuff that we've been through, even, even things that we have, consciously sort of written off, but still affect us emotionally, mm-hmm. like st- still stick with us and how we react to things and process the world around us because of that pain that's unprocessed, you know? Um, but how common is that? So a lot of people have that. And then two, for the very pastor of a church to be the sort of chief among the congregation of not having dealt with that, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I had. I feel like I have a lot of thoughts. I, the The issue of pastors failing is very personal to me because it's like I know pastors. Yeah, I work at a church, and I'm scared to heck yep. of my sinfulness being something that makes you know causes that kind of destruction mm-hmm. or that kind of pain in other people. I don't know. I think about that stuff a lot, and that that part of the podcast in particular stuck out to me for sure. Yeah, um, I have a lot of thoughts about that because um, there have been like some other moral failings of, of recent, um, kind of big names in the Christian community. Um, and, uh, a lot of it goes back to, there's all this stuff that's just uncovered that I don't think anyone had any of this kind of just good counseling or being able to move past wounds, um, not to write off any of, any of the harm that was done by them and and like the actions Mm. of these people that you hear about, um, with abuse and everything like that. Um, the, the abuse is real, the hurt is real, but, um, I think we need to, uh, the, the root cause could be addressing some of these wounds that, um, these pastors have, but because of this kind of, um, because of the, the, they have to have this 
stoicism about them of like, I, I am the pastor and I, um, don't need to show my wounds and I might not need to, to address these things as much or, um, put on a happy face and move on. Um, but yeah, because, because a lot of these pastors aren't addressing these things, I feel like there's maybe more, um, unintentional wolves in these congregations that, um, like anyone who has these buried wounds is more likely to be, um, have something, some sort of rage or abuse or something come up, um, that is connected with these buried wounds. And and I, I feel like there just needs to be more digging from people who are in these places of power, pastors who are leading these congregations, um, of really digging into, um, potential wounds, um, to, to help them and to help the congregation. And I think, um, something I heard around the election is sort of reasoning why the character of somebody like the president matters. Um, we're past that season. I'm not trying to bring that up too much, but, um, but is the, comes from a, a place of like family systems theory, which says there, you know, everybody in a system, like a family plays roles and in, in a church too. So everybody in a church system is like a relational hmm. system. It all, we all play roles and we all are, our roles are defined sort of by ourselves, but mostly by each other. And, um, one of the roles of kind of leadership, um, what comes along with that role is a filtration or not a filtering, but, a sort of like a top down, um, trickling down of character and that's good and bad. So the leader of an organization, their character flaws multiply throughout the whole organization. Oh yeah. Sort of inevitably it's not, you can't choose to do it or not sort of. Um, and so that, you know, that was sort of their argument for why, you know, the character of the president matters. It's not just because if he's a good policymaker or not, or he's a good, I mean, he can mobilize voters or whatever, all that mm-hmm. stuff matters, but it's not, or something we need to factor in is his character because that trickles down through every person he leads, which, you know, it's the whole government essentially. Um, but anyway, back to this, you know, talking about the moral failing of a pastor or, or not even the moral failing pre moral failing where unresolved grief and undiscipled emotional health, Mm -hmm. uh, trickles down through his organization. Yeah. And, and not just, it's not just a problem within him contained only within his sort of box, you know, or, or that person, it, it, it infiltrates the whole organization and ultimately that system, which is almost like a body. I mean, it's what Paul calls a body, right? Like a literally a body, I mean, not mm-hmm. literally a body, but a body of Christ that that body is infected by that, by that lack of healing, um, in a way, um, which I think is super interesting to think about. And, you know, if, if the church is a body, then the emotions of that body are incredibly important, incredibly important. And, um, and I like, uh, you might have more stuff to say about this, but they definitely said in the podcast, like the scripture in church history is, is full of ways of discipling our, mo- our emotions, like full of examples. Um, so it's not that we don't have that, that, that points to more of, um, that, it, that it's a result of kind of a modern Western way of thinking yeah. than it is a, you know, this is built into Christianity or something. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's distinctly Protestant, I think maybe mm, yeah. just to move away from some of the, uh, practices of, um, what's kind of traditional practices. What was I'm thinking the word it's 
Catholicism does a good job of this, but basically the, the, um, like the rosary or, um, Tish Warren talks about the Compline, which is a prayer within the mm-hmm. Anglican yeah. Church. is one of the offices of prayer. Well, yeah, I think that's... Uh, well, she's really good at explaining um, these kind of common prayer practices or just uh, practices in general because uh, the Anglican Church is like the highest form of church in Protestantism that it's kind of a blend of Catholicism practices um, and uh, Protestant beliefs, um, which... I think is really cool and really healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so those are practices that kind of, like I think about Compline, which is a prayer that has a motive language and mm-hmm. then you pray it every single day. It, it talks about being with those who weep, who mourn, who have experienced pain, um, are in the night, sort of a metaphor for a dark place as well as the actual night. And I think, it's almost like a way to force yourself to consider the emotions of your day, mm-hmm. the emotional content of your life in the moment, um, which I, I think essentially we need to be forced to in some ways, or we need to intentionally do that, I guess. Yeah, I've actually been moving more into those kind of practices a little bit as part of my routines or trying to, um, using more liturgies. I actually started using... Um, the rosary a little bit um, in that, I don't know if that's controversial, but using it for Protestant prayers mm. just as basically, you know, same way you use a fidget spinner to um, keep your mind focused, but using the, the rosary for, for prayers about Jesus, not about Mary, but um, and just like repeating those prayers and dwelling on certain people or ideas. And yeah, that's good. It's like a, a way to compensate for that, blind spot that went kind of Western blind spot. A little yeah. Bit. But also just, it, it seems like throughout the history of the church, it's a normal, not even before, even pre, even BC, <laughs> it was a part of mm-hmm. the, the Jewish tradition was when you were grieving, there were things you did. It was, it was expected of you. You put on sackcloth, mm-hmm. you put, you put um, ashes on your head yep. and you wailed in the city gates like you publicly mourned, um, and it was expected that you do that. Uh, it was like honoring the thing you're grieving, whether mm-hmm. that was a loss of a loved one or what it might be. Yeah. And uh, Dan Alder, in uh, one of his talks, talked about doing a mission trip in Nigeria, and um, as they were leaving, um, they were being prayed over by the by the pastors and the members of the church there. Um, they're about to get on a plane and go. And there was there, I, I can't remember exactly the context of the story, but there was something worthy of kind of being grieved in that story. I th- it yeah. might've been just been them leaving or there might've been something that hmm. fallen through or something. But he said the people laid their hands on him. The people of this church in Nigeria laid their hands on him and made guttural animalistic noises mm-hmm. of grief and wailing and crying in their prayer. Yep. And he said it made him incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah. He said, all I wanted to do was shrink away from their touch and kind of get away from that room, you know, and, and he just, but he said also along with that feeling was this feeling of power of just honesty of grief, you know, of like the, of the, um, but I think that's, I think that's a good description for me of like simultaneously the uncomfortableness and also my need for grief, you know? Yeah. And that's pretty telling that he was so uncomfortable by that, 
Um, I mean, he's a counselor. He's like professional yeah. counselor. <laughs> His job is to teach people to grieve. Yeah. Well. yeah. And I, I, I liked in the podcast, they also, um, they talked about how that same guttural kind of grieving is the same Greek word used to describe the way that Jesus grieved over Lazarus. So yeah, it wasn't just like, it was like a horse noise. Yeah. It's like horse noise. <laughs> and we just get like, you know, Jesus wept. Um, right. And right. it's a little bit different than Jesus made horse noises. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, in general, I feel like, I mean, it, it, there's, there's looking at the deficiency of Western culture, but then there, there's also looking at the, the grieving practices of non-Western cultures. And that's, yeah. that's really good. I, I remember, um, I spent some time in Afghanistan and I, I could be wrong about this, but I think they, um, they, the women, if they lose husband, um, they wear black for a full year. And so there is a, a, a full year of grieving and they would be expected. They would be maybe criticized if they didn't do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing. The difference culturally mm-hmm. and how that, but, but also you could tell me if I'm out of line on saying this, but it seems to me that Afghanis by circumstance probably are more in touch with grief less privileged in a lot of ways that that's absolutely true but i feel like maybe it's just any kind of third world country that hasn't um in in afghanistan has moved um kind of back and forth from from third world to um more developed and had a lot of war and stuff but um any, any country that that is in this place of of war or um underdeveloped has is more in touch with like the time of of jesus um, I love that I lived in that kind of context for a while because I feel like it, it connects me more to Middle East time, biblical times, first century AD kind of, kind of ideas um, because it's it it's like those cultures are still close to that. Yeah. Um, and part of that is because of their un, they're underdeveloped, and part of that is just because it's just Middle Eastern culture, and you know Afghanistan is technically Central Asia, but has, shares those same cultures and. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of factors, but I think it, it it makes me think about how it must be a factor for America to have so much prosperity is yeah. also a factor mm-hmm. in its lack of need to grieve, which absolutely, which they bring up in this podcast, and I think is really interesting. And Tish Warren wrote this book for I mean, she spent you know over a year writing this book. Uh-huh. Had no idea this pandemic was coming, but it happens to come out right in the middle of this pandemic. Yeah, and I think this has been a year that it has just laid bare our lack of ability to grieve and our resistance to grief. Yep. 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 Um, and it's a circumstance similar to going through like a wartime in your country Mm -hmm. of this brings the need to grieve to the forefront, you know, the the need to have that skill, you know, there's the pain, right? The pain is the same either way, whether or not you're able to grieve or not, but your ability to process that and do that healthily and not add more pain on top of the pain, you know, mm-hmm. um, one of the things, go ahead, I'm sorry. Hey, I was just going to say, all, um, th- thinking about that, I, I, I don't think we even have to look outside of our own country to, to see people who can grieve better than we do. I mean, we have lots of, of immigrants and refugees right. and just cultures that are historically less, um, uh, affluent than our typical white American circles that you and I mostly run right, in. Right. And so like looking for those neighbors that, um, are, are able to show us that a little bit better. I think like, I, I just think of, um, like the, the Hispanic Latino community and, um, in Durham where I live, um, 
shows that really well, that balance of like having very little and um, being and grieving like loss of certain things, you know, loss of, of their homes and, um, uh, but also having lots of joy um, in the midst of having very little. Yeah. Um, they, they model that for us mm. really well. That's a good thought that the, those two things kind of come with each other. The, the freedom to experience grief is also similar to the freedom to lean into and experience joy. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I think that's interesting that we we probably could have a whole conversation on the suppression of joy, too. Oh, yeah. Um, but so, uh, yeah, this, this one's going to be long enough by, as it is, so maybe that'll be part two. Yeah. Um, they talk, I mean, there's so many different quotes, uh, but one of them um, that I wanted to talk about is that not grieving inevitably comes out in all kinds of ways is what she said. This is the, that's literally what she said. Not grieving inevitably comes out in all kinds of ways. And goodness, I see that so much in my own life. And I really, maybe the last two or three years really started to f- try to figure that out in my life and how to rectify that. But really I see it a lot in counseling and in church is we, it's like, uh, well, I'll take an extreme example. So, uh, work with PTSD fair amount and within kind of the framework of how PTSD works is there's this trauma. Um, sometimes it's an event. Sometimes it's more complex than that. It's multiple events, or maybe it's, um, just a, a stage of life that includes just steady, um, intense trauma. And out of that trauma, our mind and our body have these kind of reactions to sort of protect ourselves. Um, and that's what it is, right? Like the trauma and the pain of the moment is too much for a person to be able to, to carry in that moment. And so our brain, our kind of heart sort of does this thing where it sort of boxes up that memory, that pain, and tries to put it in the back. Right. And it's a survival technique, right? Like it's not a how do I live my best life for the next 50 years uh, strategy. It's more of a how do I get through this hour strategy, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and our minds just sort of do that instinctually, which is really interesting. Um because this isn't just people making choices to do this. This is your your limbic system responding to something that your brain has evolved to respond to, like a tiger or something, mm-hmm. you know. But it, instead, it's your, you know, a loved one abusing right. you or something. Right. And um, so we box it up and we put it in the back. And the process for healing for that person involves slowly and surely and safely going back to that back closet and taking that box out and opening it up, because it doesn't just stay boxed up in that back place it leaks out in all these places you think about mm-hmm. the classic symptoms of ptsd you got uh nightmares uh, lack of sleep you have flashbacks and triggering thoughts intrusive thoughts um like overly angry reactions to simple things in life and so mm-hmm. what is happening is that pain and that that unresolved grief is leaking out it's poisonous like it kind of just slips out in these places um that you don't want it to you're not trying to be uh, a person who has flashbacks or or nightmares, it's this unintentional consequence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really extreme version, but I think that's uh, maybe an analogy or or just an insight into how it works in us that we can't just avoid those things forever, that unresolved grief and pain. For example, those pastors we were just talking about, you know, that that unresolved grief comes out in seeking out something to numb that pain or distract yourself from mm-hmm. that pain, whether yep. that's, you know, pornography or... Uh, an affair with another mm-hmm. woman or even anger. Like I think anger is a great result of that. And that's something that stuck out to you, the anger and the rage. Yeah. So she used the word outrage mm-hmm. um, specifically about like the past year. And so 
the only thing I would have to add to what she said is that there's like, I think there's some good outrage and bad outrage, but mm. um, you see all this outrage from the past year um, of people, basically just people being all up in arms about everything. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and that being evidence of this um, grief that as a culture, we don't know how to deal with grief of, of, uh, what she said was like loss of relationships because of the pandemic in that, you know, we can't see people as much and, um, often loss of jobs, uh, loss of stability, loss of like this nice black and white assuredness of, of how life is going to be. Um, and that, that causes grief that we, um, that directly causes things like outrage or, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought that was really interesting to think about because the, it has absolutely been a year of of outrage. Hmm. She said she said something, and she was like, "I'm not trying to be the person who sees the monster in every closet, and mm-hmm. you know, in that monster's grief, and say, oh, oh, the problems with the election are grief, and the problems mm-hmm. with the internet yep. are grief.' Yeah, you know. but I do think there's something there that there's that rage." And that need for kind of emotional satisfaction of writing that thing on the internet that I think can come from that pain um, and is motivated by that pain. I mean, there's other factors too, but I think I, th- I definitely think she was on to something with that. Um, well, it's needing like an answer. I mean, it, uh, us not being able to grieve and to me is synonymous with like not being able to sit for a while in some... Uh, place that's not black and white or that doesn't have answers but we want black and white answers and so like we want we want answers to why um life is so bad right now um as a country and we want someone to point the finger at so that we can have resolution is is one thing i totally i think you're right and that's like the forward part of that and i feel like the back end part of that too is also we just have no tolerance for the struggle or the differences in our culture or yeah. the pain in our culture yeah, the because tension. we haven't dealt with our own pain. You know what I mean? Like oh, yeah, yeah. it's like our buckets full already with distracting ourselves from our own yep. pain that we can't take you telling me this thing that disagrees with how I believe you. Know? Yep. Um, so I, I think you're right, but it's both sides of that. Mm-hmm. It's like this absolutely kind of double whammy. Um, I, and I, I want to say that I'm not just, I don't think I'm just hope doesn't sound like I'm just saying this about American culture or, other people's churches. This, this is true about me. This mm-hmm. is true about my church. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like this is true about my family, even, yeah. you know, um, I'm, I'm so, I think in the last two years I've learned how bad I am at this and the steps I've been able to make are not getting good at it. It's been really just to be better at noticing when I do the kind of unhealthy steps of distracting and numbing instead of facing my anger or my sadness, you know? Um, and I think, I think having a son, my, my son just turned two years old or is about to turn two years old. And that just really ramped up the stakes of this is happening in my life of, of my unresolved grief mm. and, and pain yeah. and um, things that have worked. Okay. Have, or have worked pretty good. I just, I should do them more often, I guess is quiet, like consistent, quiet, space to pray and to be quiet with God. Sometimes that means reading scripture. Sometimes it doesn't, Mm -hmm. but to, to talk to God and to really sit and try to be as honest as I possibly can about where I'm at, like what's going on with me. Um, not what I want, not 
you know, the fanciest prayer, but the prayer that is is brutally honest about where I'm at as I can be. Sometimes that takes a creative route of um, Adam Young. Uh, we've talked about his podcast before, the um, place we find ourselves. Adam actually introduced me to that podcast. Um, he has a worksheet on his website about praying the Psalms, and you write down a psalmic kind of structure and pray out your what's going on in your life in a, in a psalmic structure and it it is really interesting um and i want to get better at that i've done that a few times and um i don't know well, do you have any thoughts about how to do that better in your own life in our church or oh man i mean not that we have the answers but I, but it, it kind of begs the question a little bit if we're doing it wrong like what ought do we be thinking about and doing yeah that? yeah it's um well that goes back to the idea that we have all these examples in scripture and in um uh church history so like david is the one of the best examples? Yeah, great, yeah. Uh, of um, I I haven't considered that practice of like writing out your own kind of um, things like that from the Psalms, but yeah, David is such. They they talked about him in the podcast as being like um, he would just be kind of over the top emotional in our culture. We would we would perceive him as a little bit extra, I guess you could say. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. It makes you think. Should we should we play emo? songs emo worship or something yeah, you know exactly. like pay a emo band leader to become your worship leader yeah exactly but um yeah things like that 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 um i like that the idea of that practice i'm not much of a journaler myself i um uh or i don't i'm not really good at that like creative side of things but um like my oh i'm, I'm not either i'm not trying to say oh that. yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean my my practice is like that the, my personal practices are just to, um, like I said, kind of have liturgical prayers that that are repetitive enough to where That's I can good. I can dwell continuously over and over on certain things. The kind of like stuff that you're reading and repeating that aren't originally your words, yeah, but speak to your life and what you're going through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, that's for me personally. Um, uh, and I don't know as a as a church. Um, oh, I had this one thought of like that I've been really into certain Christian bands that are just more brutally honest mm-hmm. um, about because mm-hmm. there, there's there's a whole nother podcast about um, uh, contemporary Christian music um, yeah. that, that we could talk about. But well, as a as a arm of this grief avoidance. Yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. As an arm of this grief avoidance, because that, so much of it is is. Uh, just overwhelmingly positive and there's that's not inherently bad but it's not balanced by this davidic greek grief of uh and sadness about the way the world is um there's this um uh band oh gosh now i'm forgetting the the one with um uh gunger um david gunger not michael gunger from band gunger but um Anyway, I forget the name of this band, but uh, th- there's just lots. Of, there's a, f- a lot of new bands out there that are like sad. Mm. Um, yeah, embrace it and like are not shying away from it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, one collaborative band is called the Porter's Gate. Um, highly recommend the Porter's Gate. They have all kinds of songs of grief. There's a whole album, I think, about lament. Um, I think have you've heard of Sleeping at Last. Yeah. <laughs> I think they do a good job of that too. Or he does a good job of that too. So. Yeah. Yeah. So that's good. So other people's creative ways of engaging that grief, reading through that, listening to that. Yeah, that's absolutely. It's good. And they talk a lot about in this podcast about emotional discipleship. Um, 
Um, I'm going to quote Mike, Cos- Mike Cosper quoting Tim Keller. Uh, he said, uh, Tim Keller said, you have to give people the bad news before you give them the good news. Mm-hmm. And I love that framing because it's like you're, the gospel will not land. I'm trying not to say something heretical here, but like the gospel doesn't, <laughs> doesn't have the chance to fruit without the foundation of the bad news first that you are broken. The world is broken. Yeah. That we need a savior. Yeah. You know? That the resurrection isn't the resurrection loses power when we when we skip over the death and the darkness of Good Friday, you know. Mm-hmm. Um Adam Young and his podcast as as you know, as he's counseling other people, uses an analogy that I use all the time now, which is there's the arc of Friday, Jesus's death, Saturday, and then Sunday, Jesus's resurrection, or the three days of Jesus's death and resurrection. And we, we celebrate on Friday and Sunday are the two important parts. But he talks about how Saturday is this, like if you're looking at a, at a graph, Friday starts at kind of neutral and then Jesus's death. And then Saturday is this deep pit, right? This deep hole of sadness, of darkness, of loss you know you you read these accounts of the disciples who you're reading into it a little, i'm reading into it a little bit but you I, I feel like they're essentially saying well we followed jesus with our lives and then now he's dead i guess it's over sort of mm-hmm. like complete despair and yeah. turning away from this thing they had given their lives to and then sunday comes in the resurrection and the triumph of that and the beauty of that right but saturday is an important part of that arc and mm-hmm. that you don't get to sunday without going through saturday and yeah friday. Um, and that Americans, we try to tightrope across that, that chasm is the way he says it. And I think that's really interesting. It's totally oh, man, true. Yeah. And it's cheating. We can't, get to, you can't do that. You can't get the Sunday without Saturday. Oh, I love that. It's cheating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I think we think we know what Sunday is mm-hmm. and a lot of the way, in a lot of ways we don't really know what that resurrection really is because we don't know what Saturday is or we haven't embraced or faced what Saturday is. Yeah. And so, I don't know, there's a long way of saying they were saying, in the church, that part of the job of the church should be, and I think this is totally true. I just don't know how to do it necessarily, other than some of the things you and I just talked about. But is how to disciple emotionally, um, how to disciple people to be able to do this. Um, and I think I just think that's interesting. I, I want to know more about how the church can do that. And um, yeah, and there's I don't know. There, I think it's it's so deeply cultural because there's definitely like we t- we've talked about our culture's inability to hold things in tension, um, our culture's inability to, to, um, sit in mystery. Um, and I think that's in, like we were saying before, the Protestant church has real problems with both of those. Um, uh, and just sitting in the mystery and the tension is what makes you feel so uncomfortable that you have to skip over, um, you know, Friday night and Saturday of, of, um, the death and resurrection or skip, skip over the death part straight to the resurrection. It's the inability to sit in the mystery or the unknown or the tension. Um, but I think, uh, you know, the Catholicism does that part really well as, you know, there's other things that, that I would disagree with, of course, but, um, the mystery part of Catholicism I think is a healthy thing to learn from, um, for Western Protestants at least. Yeah. Yeah. Mystery. Not something we deal with very well. No. But a lot of it in scripture. Mm -hmm. And I think as a result, we can also say there's a lot of it in our God that we worship. Yeah. And 
I think he teaches us and disciples us through that mystery mm-hmm. because I think one of the things that I've learned in this journey about thinking about grief is that to do so, like if you read a psalm where David is talking to God and he's saying, basically, I'm angry at you. I, I don't, th- you're not acting like the God that I thought you were. You know, you feel distant. You say you're this, but then this is what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like these things that you're kind of like, I don't. David, be careful. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> Am I allowed to do that? Yeah, like I feels really uncomfortable. It feels faith. It feels less like it has less faith. Mm-hmm. But I think what I'm learning is that isn't actually an example of more faith. Because, yeah. God, because he is acting as if God is big enough to handle those questions and those mm-hmm. and those feelings. Um, Job does this too. He's a great example of that. Uh, some of that's anger. Some of that's sadness, you know. And I just think that to grow in your faith could mean, or I think does mean to have enough faith that God is going to still be there if you share your anger and your sadness and your pain. Yeah. And I think it's Adam Young, right. Who, who said in um, podcasts addressing exactly that is that God is big enough to handle like, yeah. Hey, God can handle your being angry at God. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I was having a conversation with somebody recently and they just talked about how, in in the beginning of their faith, they had so much hope about what God would change about their life. And they had a lot of circumstance, awful circumstance at home going on in their home life. And they had so much hope about how God would change that and rescue them. And then, you know, after a year or two years of that not changing, the only assumption they felt like they could make was, well, I'm not doing this right. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not being a good enough Christian. I'm not reading my Bible enough. I'm not I'm still cussing, whatever, you know, all the ways that we turn that into, this is shame. This is, Mm -hmm. this is my fault. Um, and man, what a, what a freeing thing to know that it's not your fault, right? Like, I think there's, there's risk in believing that it's not your fault, I guess. We were talking about this before. Dan Adler has this phrase. He says that addiction is less about the pleasure of addiction. It's more about the hatred of hope. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that translates here. And that phrase, I don't even know if I know what that phrase means yet. I'm Hmm. still thinking about it. But I think some of what it's saying is that we hate and we are so, we set ourselves up to be so opposed to the hope of God is actually as good as he says he is. Hmm. That he actually loves me like he says he loves me. And putting, it's almost like, it's so risky to believe that because you really have to be vulnerable and put yourself out there to believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think grief is is a exercise in believing that God is as good as He says He is, is and He loves wow. you as much yeah. as He says He loves you. You know, and it's like that. Let that you feel like that limb might snap. If I put myself out in that limb and that limb snap, it would be incredibly painful. And so mm-hmm. we we set ourselves up to hate that hope. I think um, I don't know that that's. I don't even, that feels a little bit convoluted. I don't know that I've worked that feeling. No, out no, no. But yeah, I think, I think you summed that idea up pretty well. Um, another quote that they pulled up in the podcast was uh, from David Foster Wallace, um, who's somebody I want to read more from. But um, he said, the truth will set you free, but not until it's done with you. I, I think that's right. I mean, sorry. He says, the truth will set you free, but not before it's finished with you. And mm-hmm. I like that. Um that there is freedom in the truth, right? There's freedom in facing your grief, your pain, and being honest about it and grieving it. That is, there is freedom in that. But there is also a process of pain. You know what I mean? Like that, it's not like that's easy. I guess 
um, this isn't a this isn't a happy road necessarily, you know, to encourage people to embrace their grief and to deal with their grief. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also what we're saying is ultimately there's there's so much compounding pain and frustration that comes with not dealing with it, um, and so we and we have to be honest about that too. You know? Yeah. So. I don't know. I'm kind of rambling at this point. I mean, do you have any, do you have any last thoughts before we're, we're wrapping up about this conversation about grief? Man. Um, yeah, I, I know we could talk about this for a long time. Uh, one thought is, uh, <laughs> the name of that band that I couldn't remember is called the brilliance. Oh, okay. Good. And I really recommend them. Um, man, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I, th- I feel like we covered a lot of yeah. what we want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, if you have any thoughts about this, you can call our number. If you go to our podcast page at anchor.fm slash Maristem, you can call in a number there and leave a message. Um, and I would love to hear from people about what, how this is, uh, affecting you. If you agree with what you're saying, if you're frustrated by what we're saying or, um, want to learn more, I would definitely recommend listening to this podcast. I'd also recommend Tish, Tish Harrison Warren's book. I'm about halfway through it right now, Prayer in the Night. Um, she's also pretty well known for another book of hers called The, Lit- the Liturgy of the Ordinary. Um, and that's kind of a quest to add liturgy to everyday life and be able to add the prayerful kind of walk through your life in in circumstances that feel very ordinary. And I think it's an interesting uh, quest too. So cool. Well, thank you so much, Adam, for talking about this with me and listening to this and, and uh, writing notes and uh, be willing to spend this time. So. Yeah, man, it was, it was great to, to kind of dwell on this idea and listen to the podcast and take notes. Um, so yeah, thanks for having me. It's such a big subject. Maybe we'll check in in a year and see how, see how it's changed us. <laughs> All right, man. Make sure you check us out at anchor.fm slash Maristem. Uh, You can leave us some feedback there or even leave a voicemail. Thank you so much for listening.